0: This is Brian Reisman, host of Side Jams, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Over the last three years, American metal band Bad Wolves have generated a big buzz by marrying contemporary and old-school influences with hard-hitting lyrics that span the personal to the political. The results have already yielded two well-received albums and five number-one rock radio tracks in America, including their cover of the Cranberries' international hit, Zombie, which was supposed to feature vocalist Dolores O'Riordan, who tragically passed away the day of the recording session. The cover also achieved global success through which Bad Wolves raised $250,000 for the Irish singer's children. The American group's most recent number one rock radio track is Sober, a topic that frontman and recovering addict Tommy Vext knows intimately. For this episode of Side Jams, I spoke to Tommy about his work as a sober coach. Despite being a busy recording and touring artist, he has still found time to aid some people in overcoming their addictions and the personal demons that spur them on. We spoke via Uber conference while he was driving through Los Angeles, and we had a congenial and intense conversation about addiction, sobriety, the path to recovery, and how being a sober coach has enriched his life. How's your life?
1: Good. How are you?
2: I'm
0: I'm out of my
1: life is my life is good. Yeah, I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. Not nah, it's so good it's not
2: fair. Well, there you go then. Yeah. I can you, really, you can't really top that.
1: You can, but yeah. <laughs> you know, you just go to a movie theater. That'd be cool.
2: <laughs> I was thinking about that. Like after we get to this whole pandemic thing, I'm just hoping people appreciate the simple things that we took for granted.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people will. I think it's going to change a lot of things. I think the interesting thing of how, for me, as someone who travels for a living and seeing how this has changed the way corporate america has learned to navigate not going to the office yeah it almost seems like it, it might be like mm, you know some people like to go to the office but it, i think if you don't have kids at home and you have space it's kind of more productive to not commute
2: well i'm used to working at home as a writer it's easy for me so i i can borrow a lot oh, so you but- love it. Yeah, I mean, I'm used to it, but I know a lot of my friends are not, not adjusting to it as well because it's just not something they're accustomed mm-hmm. to. And some people want that interaction. I mean, I, I like to go out and see people, and then I want people to leave me the hell alone at the same time. So, you know, I yeah. do both.
1: Uh, and, maybe it's uh, different for creative types. I don't know.
2: Well, you know, because when you're working on music, you get into a zone, and you can be in the studio for hours. And people are like, where'd you go? Where's Tommy? What happened?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, thanks for taking the time to chat. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. found this interview with you on the ties that bind us. Really extensive. Oh, yeah. That was
1: a heavy, that's very heavy. Yeah.
2: It's interesting because we were going to talk about, you know, for side jams, you being a sober coach. And it's interesting because that really, I mean, I would say that, you know, just your life story alone is a book. So we, this is actually a good interview for people to check out. I think in the context of this interview, in terms of, you know, your life story and dealing with yeah. addiction and then recovering.
1: Absolutely.
2: And you have an intense life story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of us, a lot of people in recovery, we have our stuff, you know. I, I always tell people, because I've, I've done a lot of public speaking and stuff, obviously, in recovery. And then I've also been hired to, to speak at different uh, institutions. Sure. But it, it, to me, I always say it's like, it's all relative, you know. And so it might seem like some of the things that I've been through are extraordinarily difficult. Um, and they were at the time. But I think everyone has the has the ability to rise above things like this, and even worse because I've seen people who have had it even crazier stories get their get their lives back or establish them to begin with.
2: I sort of feel like the average person does have the ability to be addicted to something it doesn't have to be drinking or or drugs it could be anything actually
1: oh yeah
2: and for some reason i don't and i don't I don't know that's necessarily talked about so much like. I've known people who've had a serious drinking problem and people just had a temporary serious drinking problem. You know, they went through a bad patch in their life, but they didn't become an alcoholic. They just, it was just for those few months, whatever. Yeah,
1: they didn't cross the threshold, yeah.
2: What's interesting too is because you have the song Sober and the lyrics to that when I was looking over, it makes me think that it's not so much from the perspective of the person trying to get sober as the person trying to help someone else get sober.
1: Well, it's actually both. I think the first verse is the loved one of the addict alcoholic and the second versus the addict alcoholic uh, in the first person. And then this the kind of final chorus, res, like resounds as a message of hope. You know, yeah, yeah. It's the, it's, In music, there's a lot of talk about, you know, artists in the first person talking about the woe is me, like, poor me, poor me, like my, this is my addiction. And there's a greater story because for everyone addict or alcoholic, there's five to 25, immediate people in their lives, depending on how full their lives are, that are immediately affected by their own disease, you know? And I think that it's a bigger conversation. I think that's what Snow Babies is tackling, how, you know, the opioid crisis and addiction is affecting the family dynamic, and it's something that we all need to be aware of. I mean, everyone knows someone who suffered from drugs and alcohol at one point in time.
2: We should mention that that's a film coming out through Better Noise Films, actually later on, which is one of the one of the co-directors of The Retaliators made that.
1: Yes, I made a I made a cameo in The Retaliators, actually. Yeah,
2: that's cool. Nikki Six has also been big on this too, talking about the yeah. opioid crisis.
1: Yeah, I mean, we you know Nikki's been in uh, in recovery for a long time, and he's been you know obviously outreach and service work. I think the Heroin Diaries and and just a Motley Crue story uh, of how they kind of exposed the behind the scenes, you know, with the book and then the film.
2: I mean, obviously, you know, we've heard about all the crazy rock and roll debauchery stories from the classic era of rock and roll. How much is that really true today? I mean, how crazy are bands today? And then for you, what are the challenges of being on the road potentially around other bands that are, are doing that or living it up and partying and doing too many drugs and drinking too much?
1: I had, You know, I obviously had my party days. You know, I've been in recovery for 11 years, but I've been a musician for 24. Um, and, you know, I, as a sober artist, you know, who tours with people who, you know, sometimes drink, you know, my the guys in my band, they have a couple of drinks here and there. You know, we have a rule. We don't drink on the tour bus because that's like our safe space. And that's really it. It's not too difficult to navigate. A lot of the bands that we've toured with have people who are also sober. And I think that, you know, the party years, a lot is behind a lot of people and i think that if you want to have longevity in a career in music you kind of have to take it seriously and take care of yourself we've seen so many people from you know uh you know the Scott Weiland and the Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and you know then you have the suicide issue which is obviously taking, you know Chester Bank, you know Lincoln Park and Chris Cornell Soundgarden and yeah. and it's it's that component of um you know, that alcoholic, addict, depression, and, and again, like, attempted suicide, I'm an attempted suicide survivor. A yeah. lot of people that I've worked with in recovery have, have experienced suicidal ideation, um, thoughts and feelings, and even acted out on it. And, you know, when you're in a place of desperation and you're dealing with depression, it's easy to get lost because the depression itself, it, it kind of lies to you, and it tells you that it's always going to be like this. Yeah, You know, so you go, you get to a place where mentally you're desperate to do anything to just not feel. And I think that's what a lot of the more severe cases of alcoholics and addicts deal with. We might not necessarily be addicted to a, a specific drug or alcohol, more so than people become addicted to escaping from their feelings, from everyday life, from, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be with each individual. But I feel like it's rooted in escapism that gets so far out of control that it, it becomes a cycle of self termination, whether that's through suicide or through slowly killing yourself
2: with, with substance. Yeah, I was like, if I feel like a lot of some of the sort of the grunge guys, it was almost like a slow suicide through drugs. Maybe do you think for some addicts the problem is it, it becomes a temporary mindset like, well, you know, I don't know what kind of a future I have or who knows what's gonna happen tomorrow, so let me just enjoy the moment now, regardless of how much damage I'm doing to myself.
1: Yeah, I think in the I think in the beginning, you know, the it's You know, addiction and alcoholism is a progressive disease. Most mental health disorders are also progressive in nature, which means they never get better. The only way to get better is to deal with it. You know, for for the addict and alcoholic, abstaining is the first step. And then, you know, there's the, the emotional, mental, physical work to rehabilitate and to find a new way of living. And Same thing with with mental health like whether you know if you're struggling with mental health issues and you know Psychiatric medication isn't working even before you even go that route a lot of people who aren't who are suffering from severe symptoms of mental health disorder, You know in other countries they suggest that you Observe your work environment your home environment your school environment. Are you exercising? Do you have food allergies? You know, a lot of people don't realize the implicated effects of of sugar abuse on mental health. There's so many different things that we, we don't really educate the public to, you know, the products that we consume every day and how they can be affecting us. For me personally, as somebody, you know, I've lost over 120 pounds. I was an obese person. And um, wow, um my first, my first drug was sugar when I was a child. You know i grew up in a poor family and i had a lot of anxiety and i didn't fit in and i was awkward and abusing sugar and candy and snacks to the point where shoplifting snacks was my first issue so that that kind of perplexity in my personality predated any exposure to drugs and alcohol and then i think you know i got exposed to drugs and alcohol at a very young age and then over the better part of a decade I think I started drinking and drugging at thirteen and by the time I was twenty three I it was I fully descended into uh into alcoholism.
2: You really got a sugar high first.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It still works like that on me too. I'm I'm well I'm adversely affected. My mood is adversely affected by sugar.
2: I mean as far as being a sober coach what motivated you to doing that and how does that help you on your own journey?
1: Well I think that you know, I think I started out, you know, once I was in recovery, I had a couple of years under my belt, kind of how I said in, in, the, uh, in the aforementioned interview and the other publication that my attempted suicide was thwarted by somebody asking me to help them get sober. And I was in the middle of committing suicide and I got a phone call from someone who needed help and they had just overdosed on heroin and were living on the street wow. and they still had a phone, their phone was still on. And I went and met this guy and he's since he's, he's seven years sober. Now he's become, a, he's actually become a millionaire and, you know, and it's crazy because he, you know, we both almost died that day and you know, we would have killed the wrong guys. So wow. I, I got really that good feeling that I got kind of from sugar and from you know that escapism from reality was transplanted with emotionally investing into helping another person and as i watched them you know as i became a part of somebody else's story there's a there is definitely a terminal uniqueness and a narcissistic component to the mental obsession of drugs and alcohol and the anxiety you know it's my belief and understanding that anxiety is the byproduct of complete self obsession and it's either obsession with what's gonna to happen tomorrow or what does everyone think about me but it's all rooted in self and so through altruism and being of service to others and fully committing to the service of others became something I chased because I didn't have self-esteem I was suicidal because I wasn't doing anything I didn't feel like I was had any more value because I wasn't doing anything of value for anyone else and so when I experienced the miracle of helping another person fully that became a new path for me. And so I went down that road and I just really got into it. I wanted to do things and I started a nonprofit organization when I moved back to LA and then that it went for a year and it was like too hard to do. And it didn't really work. You stay sober and you keep trying things and you try to find ways to align yourself. And you know, then I was out of a job and I, I started helping, you know, people move furniture and, I would walk people's dogs, and I would do any odd job so I could pay my rent. And somebody asked me if I could, you know, come over here and talk to these kids. And then that, that place hired me to work at a men's facility at, a, at a adolescent, not an adolescent—not adolescent—at um like a early twenties, like youth men's recovery center. And I ran the place. And then my boss there saw that I, you know, that I, I had a certain way with other people, and started training me. So I started taking training courses and I was being, I was shadowing other companions and counselors and, and they, uh, they basically, they, they got me an education. And then I started working with high profile clients and, you know, I, I can't say who my first client was, it it, it was so famous. They could stop traffic. I mean, it's like, these are like the most famous people in the world. And I, I, no one told me where I was going and they were like, all right, cool. And I went to this place, um, I had an Uber drop me off at at this address at a very very nice establishment, and I was like, okay, and and a bunch of security guys let me in and took me in an elevator, and I went up and I met a doctor, and then my boss was sitting there, and this dude just came in the room and was like, hey, I'm so and so, and I was like, whoa, yeah,
3: you
2: know, no pressure.
1: And, well, that was the thing. It was like I I don't none of that stuff mattered to me, you know, and so I think because you know having. Like I said, um, you know, having come from extreme poverty and an alcoholic family with, a, you know, my twin brother was mentally ill. He he never got sober and then ultimately tried to murder me. Uh, you know, yeah, I remember reading that. Yeah, in 2010. And so having a near-death experience will really put everything into perspective for you. You know, and, and there's a saying, Eckhart Tolle says that nothing that is real can be destroyed. And for the first time in my life, I wanted to live and I and somebody else was trying to kill me rather than me trying to kill myself. And it's a real wake up call. It's a real, real wake up call. of You know, taking inventory of what we have and how valuable and some people think. And again, it's like I don't really look at things as, oh, this happened to me. I think of it as this happened for me because as a result of what my the gift that my brother gave me, I've been able to help save other people's lives, you know? And I also see things differently, you know, like when I look at a sunflower, I see all of it, you know, when I'm, when I see a, you know, when I see someone struggling, I see all of them, you know, I've been changed. You know, you can't turn a a pickle back into a cucumber. Once you kind of see what's going on, the outside bullshit, All this, you know, and it's like a lot of the noise that's going on in in the, in in the political climate in this country and the drama and the back and forth that veil doesn't work anymore. You know, nobody can hold up something as a truth that is a lie to me and convince me otherwise, Uh, because the, the perspective that life is so precious and that every moment we have while we're here is sacred and. I'm a human being, and I lose perspective of that all the time, but that's the center. And that's the gift, is that most people don't realize they're too busy defending mental mental positions and ego and all yeah. this other stuff. And while we're running around, you know, it's like a donkey chasing a carrot that's tied to a string on the person who's wearing its back. And it's like, we're chasing this carrot and there's grass on the ground.
2: It's interesting how you were talking about the fact that you you're dealing with somebody very famous, and here they're dealing with somebody who's you know you have your band, but you're not you're not that level. To them, you're a regular person, and I guess I'm assuming that's part of the process is being humbled by the fact that you know you're not going to some celebrity clinic here. You know, you're having somebody else who's who's at a different level. Than you are who's gone through the exact same thing.
1: Well, at this point, I wasn't even actively working as an artist. This is years, probably four or five years before Bad Wolves, before okay. now. So, so how did they you respond? Know, so, uh, I mean, you know. The thing with me is is that i always what i get is you don't understand if you live my life you would do drugs and drink too i can't get sober because this and and eventually i just you know i just disclose my my experience and i'm like hey that's cool but check this out you know you keep talking but why don't you listen And i'm like i'm not going to tell you what to do i'm just going to tell you where i came how i got here and then you can make a decision because if if You know, I believe if one person can do it, another person can do it. That's true true equality. It's within all of us. It's in me.
2: Well, I think that's that's the thing. There's always the litany of excuses, right? You know, you had a rough week, or I know it's Saturday night, or, you know, it's been, you've gone through all these things. And and I guess in a way for someone who's stuck in that, you can always come up with an excuse to do something self-destructive.
1: Well, listen, this is what I tell people. If you fight for your limitations, the grand prize is you get to keep them. So congratulations. I am not an acceptor of excuses. I don't make excuses for myself. uh, And I don't accept excuses from people in my life. I don't accept them. I'm like, that's okay. I'd rather not hear that. And I'm like, you know, I don't need to say anything about it.
2: And it's something that we all do. I mean, it doesn't even matter if you're an addict or not. We always have it through this whole pandemic. I have the thing I've complained about is not my situation as far as employment or where I am in my life, I'm just worrying about people being safe and trying to get us out of this. That's my main concern. But there are a lot of people who think this is, it's like the cliche is the pandemic's not happening to you, it's happening to all of us. And there's a self centered yeah, I mean,
1: self- it, it, there's, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's some consolation in that, I'm sure, that it's not like, oh, you're the only one. Yeah. I mean, it's happening for us. It's not happening to us. A lot of this stuff, you know and this is this is how i observe it um this is a lot of the things that are happening in this country are happening because of us it's our fault and our complacency has made us soft we're the softest generation in 2 in 150 years
2: I think also it's just there's a lot of narcissism in this society. Now, social media has certainly been a big problem there. I mean, you see some of the most ridiculous arguments ever on social media, people saying things they would never say in real life and oftentimes saying very yeah. damaging things as well.
1: Well, yeah, I was just talking about this in an interview earlier that it's easier, people will, and it's not because people are bad, it's because we're interacting with avatars face-to-face. Most people will not go too far because they genuinely are good and don't, once you see that you are hurting another person's feelings, you stop because you're not an asshole. Or you stop because you could see that you're making a person angry and there's there's a threat of retaliation. With the internet, right? there's no consequence. So people who have grown up in an environment where they interact with them, each other aggressively, through a virtual reality without consequence, have lost the ability, or they've never perfected the ability to empathize.
2: So have you, been, have you been seeing a lot of your a your a lot of your clients during the whole no, pandemic?
1: I just, no, I, I have, so I haven't been doing sober companioning during the pandemic, because I've been working on music. I, over the past two and a half years, the band has toured so much that I've, I've let most of my clients go. I kept one on. Uh-huh. um and and then you know they're all okay now, you know traditionally, I work with people for thirty to, to ninety days to get them off the ground. I had one long term client who was con, uh consistently relapsing uh-huh. uh and then some more consequences needed to be produced within his family dynamic in order to get him to commit and so he, you know everybody's everybody that I've worked with previously they seem to be doing fine, and so uh I've literally just been in the studio. I wrote a book. I, I co-wrote a book with Riley Perez, who's a writer that works for HBO and a few other networks. My biography is done. I've recorded almost four albums worth of music, you know, and so wow. I've been busy. It's a mental health thing. It's like you have to get productive.
2: Well, this is the advantage that artists have: is that you know, if whether we're you know dealing with sobriety or not, that you can like. For me, it's been easy to kind of burrow because I always have something I want to do. But there are a lot of people yeah. that don't ha- don't ha- don't have that outlet, and I, I think people don't even think about that. Like I think having an artistic outlet, regardless of what you're dealing with, life, is, regardless of whether you're making money at it or not, is an important thing. And I think that's something that's not encouraged so much in our society anymore. Yeah. Like the, the ability to, to do something to express yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I what I've told people, you know, whether it's followers or friends, to find the thing because everybody has stuff they want to do. You know, it's just about finding the time and then executing it. When you have nothing but time on your hands, it's just like get busy. Some people learned another language. I have a friend who learned Portuguese during this. That's great. I, I got friends who are athletes and bodybuilders who are like, oh, we're gonna learn yoga instead because the gyms are closed. There are certain kinds of people who are opportunistic in their advancement of self. And that comes back down to self-esteem. So if you want to be more and you want to do greater, these are the times to take the opportunity to do those things. And it doesn't matter how big or how small, you know, you might want to just not drink anymore, you know, or you might want to stop eating snacks after seven o'clock at night. Yeah. You know, in the beginning of this thing, I lost like 12 pounds because I didn't go to restaurants. I was like, man, I don't know why I go to restaurants.
2: And you save money too.
1: Yeah. I I saved more money during this thing.
2: Oh yeah. No, it's, I mean, one of the things that I think it's going to be tricky reopening everything is simply the fact that people are used to spending less money now. And we live in a society that's all based on consumerism. So it's going to be a challenge to see how people come back to this because, I mean, you know, I like going out to eat. I miss going out and doing certain things. So undoubtedly that'll happen again. But it is kind of funny. I've had people remark to me, like, oh man, my bills are so much lower. <laughs> you
1: know? Well, it's, it's about a- keeping your keeping your overhead down, you know, is a, is another part of this thing, you know? And so another part of you know, just, it's, yeah it's just it's a it's it, there's so many things there's so many things that happened that are perceivably good or bad but they just happened yeah and i think that the good thing is is that people are waking up i think some of the major major points and again as someone who has re- worked with people in recovery in LA yeah this like sex trafficking is a serious issue
2: now that's a problem for sure and
1: a lot of addicts have that trauma in this town and now it's finally getting out and people are finally talking about it because it's so it's kind of so unconscionable that nobody wants to say hey this happened to me and it's so unbelievable that nobody wants to admit that it could be true so it was something that unless you're on the ground level and you see it yep it's not real it's like the Loch Ness monster it's a boogeyman and now when you work with that and you know people that this has happened to and you know people who are actively fighting against it to see this space where information is being shared now where alternative information is now being validated right is a wonderful thing because it's the first step in empowering people to make an effective change which desperately needs to happen for these children so we can arrest that cycle because it's a criminal enterprise and oh, yeah. it is, it's a, its contributing to the opioid crisis.
2: We have a society that tends to self-medicate on a lot of different levels for a lot of different reasons. I mean, from the people who are heavily traumatized, even, even to people who are just struggling with day-to-day issues and everyone, it's sort of like, it's like a quick, it's a quick fix. Um, yeah, obviously the first thing, to dealing with it is addressing the issue, which I think a lot of people don't do. That's why a lot of people end up falling into a cycle of addiction and some, and obviously what what you're talking about is a lot harder for people to talk about. It's just not yeah. something you casually bring up in conversation. Like, you know, people have been sexually assaulted and it took them, some of them took them years to really discuss it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because people feel like they're alone. And when you start to see that this is something that affects 800,000 children annually in America, you start to understand why bands like Linkin Park, who talked about sexual abuse, become platinum-selling bands. Bands like Corn, who talk about sexual abuse, become platinum-selling bands. We're the, that kind of a band. We talk about our experiences. There's going to be a lot of opening up of other things and issues on the new record, um, because it's time to talk about them. And the thing is, is that how many people relate to that stuff shows you how big the issue is. And that's always been, I've always seen that. As people, you know, you don't relate to these things as deeply. It doesn't resonate as deeply unless you have some form of experience, whether it be you or someone you know or someone you love.
2: One thing I wanted to ask you actually is just, you know, people talk about, you know, alcoholism as, as a disease. And I remember speaking, I did a story for Grammy years ago on like art kind of uh, rehabilitation places that it would help, you know, artists dealing with their addiction and their pain by doing art therapy, obviously. And they didn't want, one place they want to treat it like an addiction. They wanted it to, they wanted to discuss personal responsibility that you should treat it, that this is a choice you have to make to change. How do you view the whole, the whole concept of it as a disease itself? Do you mean that literally or do you see it as in a, in a different way?
1: Uh, I mean, I think that a true alcoholic and a true addict, as it is defined in, in the literature as a disease, I think that the there is at some point in time where it differentiates from the heavy drinker that can right. either taper off or moderate, and the, and the alcoholic, the true alcoholic who cannot stop. And at, at every alcoholic's drinking or drugging career, there's a threshold where they lose the power of choice. Mm. And so there is no choice anymore. And that's that's the defining term to me. So yes, I do I do believe uh and it has been my experience that it is a dis-ease and you know that the addict alcoholic has lost the power of choice if they don't have some form of moral and maybe an and albeit spiritual intervention. So whether it's through psychology, you know, which sounds like what, what you're talking about. Yeah. But there there needs to be, uh, in, in effect, a treatment greater than self will.
2: So, then, lastly, as far as being a sober coach and helping other people, what are the biggest life lessons that you've learned and the, what wisdom can you impart onto people who've gone through the struggle or going through the struggle that you've been through?
1: I don't know. Courage is not the absence of fear. A, a courageous person is not courageous because they lack fear, they experience the fear and they decide to go through it anyway. And don't quit before the miracle happens. And don't quit after the miracle happens.
2: I think the thing I've learned is that through a majority of situations, even a lot of people who seem like they have it together are nervous or afraid of something and it's just combating the fear rather than trying to ignore it. I've talked to a lot of people who've kind of just, you don't want to say fudge their way through things, but you just kind of improvise and you do it and you see what happens. Because nothing will really go the way you plan it. It's a leap of faith, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how it goes.
2: It's like life is an occasion. you got to rise to it. That's
0: it. That wraps up this latest episode of Side Jams. Please join me for the next installment, which will feature Megadeth bassist David Ellison. The tunes used in this episode are from Fox and the Law, and I licensed them through AudioSocket. As always, thank you very much for listening.